It is a pleasure to be able to do Parsha Pizza. <clears throat> I know that uh, this is a uh, staple event here in Philadelphia, and uh, I can say now that having the opportunity to, to, to share some Divrei Torah at Parsha Pizza, I feel very much a part of, even more so, of the community um, than before. I've been you know, coming here for many years because my, um, my wife is from Northeast Philadelphia, but now we moved here in the summer, and uh, so to have the opportunity to give to share some Divrei Torah Parsha Pizza. Uh, it's really um, a wonderful experience. So thank you for this opportunity. Now, <clears throat> I wanted to share a shear that I had heard from one of my rabbi, my rabbi Rabbi Tarragon at Gush. Um, I didn't hear this shear from him in person. I heard it from him um, via the internet. But that being said, I thought it was an interesting shear. I wanted to share it here, and you guys can perhaps tell me what you think also. Uh, I understand that participation is invited, is that, mm -hmm. is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Very good. Okay, so let's get right to it. So it's about the ten makos, of course. We're in Parsha's bow. Um, <clears throat> now, the makos span Va'era and Bo, so we're kind of going to be jumping back and forth between the two. Understandably, it's one big story. So, here we go. <coughs> Amen. Okay, so what he wants to do is give a view of like what are the messages of the ten makos. The messages of the ten makos can be viewed in a lot of different ways. So he he was um, sharing some different ideas about what those messages were. Uh, a lot of it comes from different ways of uh, grouping makos together. There's um, many many different ways that you can put them together. The most commonly thought of grouping, of course, is ditzah hadash beachav, which is three three four. Um, and much has been said about what those groupings mean. But uh, in this year, what Rabbi Tarragon was conveying was that you could um, think about them in lots of different ways. <clears throat> now, one, and okay, so off the bat, if you think of the Makos, you might think of it as like a punishment. It's kind of very punitive, damaging, you want to be destructive to Mitzrayim. And maybe in a certain sense it was, but there were also. Uh, specific positive messages, messages that were being, being conveyed as well. Certain ideas that were trying to be brought across, not just as a punishment for the slavery. Um, and a lot of it had to do with theology. It had to do with the gods of Mitzrayim um, the God, and versus the Jewish God. That Hashem was coming to say, I am here, I'm Hashem, and your ideas are uh, invalid. So, uh, I'll elaborate. <clears throat> If you look at the um, the first two makos, if you can if you could pair them together, so we have Dam and Svardaya. When you think about Dam and Svardaya, uh, I would say in general about all the makos, we not everyone, but many people, probably myself included, tend to have the um, uh, the preschool version in mind. We tend to think of it as like a not not like a song, but like a song. So, you know, what you learn early in life sticks with you. Uh, it's hard to break free of it. And this is true for all of learning, and certainly Chumash. Any Parshios, any Chumash you learn is, uh, sometimes we hear children's stories, but it's not just children's stories. There's a lot more to it. But it's so hard to kind of recognize that. So, which Makos, you know, so one primary message off the bat is to say that the gods of Mitzrayim are going to be nullified or shown to be lacking. Um, not, not what the Egyptians thought. So, <clears throat> the Egyptians worshipped the sun, 
The Egyptians worshipped animals. We see, we, we know that from various Pesukim and Chumash and from history. So, Choshech covered the sun for a week. Right? No sun for a week. Where's the sun God? Can't see him. They worship the animals. Dever kills all the animals. Right? So, that would, that's uh, striking a blow to the Mitzrayim. Uh, what he emphasized in the shir was the the, um, the the worship of the Nile River, though. Uh, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. The Nile River was the source of all sustenance of Israel. There was, uh, they, they were able to plant and grow and have a very strong economy based on the Nile River. And the first two makos, both Dam and Sfardeya, targeted that. So, let's if we look in the Pesukim, Hashem tells Moshe to go warn Paro near the Nile River. Um, now, there is a medrash that, that's commonly referred to that he was like embarrassing him because he was like going to the bathroom. But the other thing, which might be even more pshat, is that Paro was doing some sort of mourning you know, worship. He was at the Nile, worshiping the Nile, and Moshe comes up to him right then and there and says, listen, Hashem is going to send a message that, you know, vidatem ki Hashem, and not the Nile. And the Nile is a source of life, but comes the maka of blood, and it's suddenly the source of death. It's blood, um, you can't drink it, but it's not just the water itself. Because it, if you read the description of the maka um, in the Psukim, it says that all the fish died, it says that there was a bativash, bativash or it became like repugnant, you know, repugnant, pungent, uh, smelled bad, you couldn't even get close to it. And so what was once, you know, teeming with life and uh, a stream of, of, that gave forth sustenance is now dead and disgusting. And then, part B, so after the Dom ends, is that it's filled with Sfardim, which are frogs, or maybe there's other translations of what that is. So animals that, that don't normally maybe live there, they kind of just come forth. So the Nile is, is unrecognizable from its previous form. So that's kind of striking a blow to the, to the uh, vision of the Nile. And we find this emphasized in the, the Navi Yechezkel as well. Um, it's actually the Haftorah of Parshas Va'era. If you look at the Haftorah of Parshas Va'era, jump here quickly. So the Navi Yechezkel, uh, in the center of, of his Sefer, of the, of the book of, of Yechezkel, there are a series of nevuos to all the many nations, to the various nations uh, in the area. And he has a whole series on Mitzrayim. So the first in that, the first parak of that series is the Haptorah Vaira. Um, and it says, so I'll read it in English. So Ben Adam, which is translated as son of man or mortal, set your face against Paro, king of Egypt, and prophecy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and you shall say, Thus says my Lord Hashem Elohim, Behold, I am against you, Paro, the great sea monster that crouches within its rivers, who has said, Mine is the river, and I have made it myself. And the Hebrew of that is, Paro Melech Mitzrayim, Hatanim Hagadol. The great, Otanim is hard to translate, but some sort of serpent or sea monster. So Paro made himself out to be um, some sort of God-like figure, as we know from ancient Egypt, and specifically embodied by a tanim, which maybe is a crocodile or a serpent. Um, so Hashem says, you think that you made the yaor, but think again. I shall attach hooks to your cheeks, 
I shall cause the fish of your rivers to cleave to your scales, and I shall draw you out from within your rivers. It's pretty graphic. It's tearing the metaphor forward that it's almost like a fishing line, that I'm going to throw the hook in, drag you out, your scaly, other dead fish will kind of drag along with you, kind of grotesque uh, image. So this is not um, specifically describing Dominus Fardea, but it, it conveys this idea. Paro thinks he's larger than life. He thinks he's like a, uh, some sort of god figure associated with the Aor. And Hashem says, I'm going to completely negate that view. Um, now, another thing that I would mention in this context, which wasn't, Rabbi Targan didn't talk about this, but it was something I saw in a different sefer from, uh, from the Ravanit Sharon Rimon, wrote, wrote a very interesting thing on Parshas Vaira. <coughs> and she um, talks about a similar idea in the context of the, of the, um, the moftim, or the osos, that Moshe and Aaron do for Paro before the Makros. So they do signs for Bnei Israel, and they do a sign for Paro as well. So setting aside the meaning of, of the signs for Bnei Israel, the one that was done for Paro was, right, Aaron throws the stick on the ground, it turns into a tanim, that word may be familiar now, and we'll come back to that. It turns into a tanim, and then it turns back into a stick after the Khartoumim imitate it, and it eats them all up. So without elaborating too much on it, it's a similar idea that she's uh, her question there was, what is the purpose of this sign? What is it trying to accomplish? Is it to prove that Hashem is, you know, the, the ruler of the world? Well, that's really more the makos. And maybe, you know, uh, kind of being capped off by the Yamsuf. But the initial, you know, the opening, the opening volley, the original idea of the Osos is, is conveying this similar message. Paro, you think you're this Tanim Hagadol, but I'm going to take a stick, which is a dead branch, and throw it on the floor, and suddenly it too can be a tanim, just like you think you are. And not only that, it's going to turn back into a stick and you know devour all of you know in this kind of miraculous way devour all of your sticks. So again, it's kind of undermining this image of Paro as a god, of the or as a god, and using their uh, symbols against them. Um, so that's so that's one message is kind of undermining the symbols of Mitzrayim. Choshech for the sun, Deber for the animals, and then Dam and Svardaya for the uh, for the or, and possibly even the original Moface that um, Moshe does, uh, that Aaron does uh, before Paro and his advisors. That's A. After D, after undermining the Egyptian gods, the next step is. So so, what's next? The next step is to say, well, what is Hashem? So Hashem is is the the main central idea is, mono, is monotheism as opposed to paganism or polytheism. And some of the core ideas of monotheism that, are be, that we believe in and that are being conveyed in the Makos, so I'll take it one by one. So one is uh, Bria, creation, you know, creation from nothing, ex nihilo. So we see this a little bit by um, Kinim. Moshe throws some, you know, the, the dirt suddenly turns into something else. Um, but that's still not quite there. So if you look at Dam and Svardaya, something turned into something else. Or just you know, animals were kind of living in the, in the water and the water turned into blood. It wasn't like creation. Kinim was a little bit of a creation where the, suddenly there were bugs where there was something that was not living before. But still it was turning one thing into another. But um, if you look at some of the later Makos, there was more of a creation, especially in Barad. Because in Barad, the Psukim say that the, the fire and the hail were like mixed together, right? So it was, it was this un, uh, imp, you know, this physically impossible phenomenon where you had the fire and the, and the hail mixed. It couldn't be. 
Um, so that was a, a bria. Furthermore, uh, the last whole series of makos, Shechian, Barad, Arba, they all kind of direct your view to the heavens. Moshe throws uh, dust in, or ashes into the sky, and Shechin comes out. Barad is from the sky. Arba came uh, a swarm from the sky. Choshech, the whole the sky was darkened. So there's kind of this idea that you're looking upwards, which is symbolic. It's not literal, but it's symbolic. Um, now he also said about Barad, which is very interesting, is that not only were these things physically impossible, so it's a, it's a new bria, it's a new creation, but it it has another, almost a philosophical kind of idea, which is that in in a paganistic culture, an Egyptian idea, you would have different deities for different forces. So there's good and evil, and there's fire and water. Everything is divided into uh, unique forces. So it would be unimaginable that they would coexist. They're always battling with each other. Uh, we find this um, I think, uh, in Yeshayahu. Right? We say the bracha every morning, really it's based on a pasuk that's or in choshech, that it's good and bad, that, you know, kind of, um, not that the Egyptians were Zoroastrians, but in ancient, ancient um, religious beliefs or ancient ideas that you would have uh, different forces of good and evil. Now, so the idea that, so why is that relevant here? Because in, in the Makkah of Barad, this is a unique thing that you didn't find in the earlier Makos. Uh, it says, Hayereis devar Hashem, people who feared Hashem and took heed to the fact that a Makkah was coming were saved. So it says that people who you know, went inside their houses or gathered their animals inside their houses, gathered their servants inside their houses, they were spared. So now you suddenly have an idea where the same, it, Hashem is not just the punishing God, Hashem can also be the, um, the kind God who saves you and gives you a, a warning in advance that if you follow, you can be saved. So you find them with the, with the positive and the negative coexisting, which is symbolically represented by fire and water but also by the idea that, well, if you obey, then good things can happen too. So he, what he was uh, explaining in the shir was that um, you're kind of bringing the good and the evil, the, the good and the bad together, um, coming from one force, which is also uh, an idea that would not be found in a paganistic belief system. Um, so, so we've had undermining Egyptian gods. We have some ideas of Hashem. So that, you know, in other words, that there's um, one and not many forces, there's creation. <clears throat> so these are some of the ideas that are being conveyed. Now, another very fascinating message that Ritarian wanted to say the Makus are showing is not necessarily theological per se, but not at all actually, not aside from theological, which is um, kind of undermining Egyptian society. So the great strength of Egypt was their economy. Right? If we look at, say, for Bratius, there was a famine. Egypt built up a great deal of strength by being able to feed the world. Egypt had the Nile River, as we've said. Egypt had great construction projects. But most of all, Egypt had a lot of food. Uh, food was, was in you know, vast supply and vast abundance. And if you look step by step, these, uh, this, gets, this too is undermined in the Makos. So we already saw that Dam um, it ruined the water. It undermined the Yaor, which was the source of sustenance. <clears throat> and what's interesting, so, so you have, 
you know, the ore is undermined, the water is destroyed. And not just the water, but the fish. It says that the, the psukim specifically emphasized that the fish were killed. Um, so that's a source of food. If you live near water, you eat fish. So there's no more fish, they're all dead. In the gmaka, so what's left to eat? So any, well, setting aside what's left to eat, people day to day probably didn't eat fish every day, but maybe they had bread or whatnot. Now, other makos attacked other aspects of these things. So the tzvardea, it says that it was you know, in your room and in your bed, but it also it was in the oven. So that, right, it specifically says that tzvardeim went into the oven. So now the ovens are kind of like disgusting, basically. They're filled with tzvardeim, and maybe they smell afterwards. So your ovens are disgusting. Um, we move on to the next maka, kinim. It says that not only were, the, were these <coughs> Uh, bugs all over the people and the animals, but it says that all of the afar ha'aretz became kinim. So <clears throat> it's not like little lice, you know, that scratch your head. Imagine if you like pick up a pile of dirt, it's like, you know, Indiana Jones or something. There's just like <laughs> teeming with disgusting things. <coughs> all the dirt is suddenly turned into uh, bugs and, and uh, insects and it's disgusting. But not only is it disgusting, uh, you can't plant anything. Probably can't build in the in the ground either, or make bricks set with the sand. But you also you certainly can't plant because the there's no more earth. It's all living and crawling and you know convulsing. Uh, and finally, <clears throat> the makos of Barad and Arbe, which are paired in in Tehillim, I think in in, in Parak Ein Ches, the makos of Barad and Arbe are described as destroying the plants. So anything that was already growing. The Barad knocked, knocked down many things, <clears throat> and then the Arba, <coughs> read the Psukim, it says that they devoured whatever was left. So there's nothing left. You know, the water's destroyed, the fish are dead, there's no earth, and all the plants that, were fi- that had already been grown were either, you know, destroyed or devoured by these last Makos. So there's nothing, they're, they're completely, there's, you know, there's very limited food, people are now begging for their food, and, um, and the great mighty Egypt is, you know, brought low. It's my understanding that there was about three weeks of warning leading up to yeah. each plague, and then the plague would last for about a week. I think for the first two of each set, but not the third. It's not, I don't think it's really clearly stated in for all of them, for well, some of them it is. It would be fair to suggest that there was like some, somewhat of a recovery in those three weeks from each plague, or that, it was like growing up, I just assumed one after the other after the other. Right, it was, it was spread out over time. I think for some of these things, it, it would be fair to assume that, absolutely. So it wasn't quite as devastating. Right. No, it's, I don't know if it's like utter desolation. Older. But, uh, you know, like, uh, like, like an apocalyptic movie. Hmm? There couldn't have been anything left for the next plague if it was utter desolation. Right. Well, each one was a little different. Well, it's not. It's not. Sam didn't want to kill them all. He wanted them to recognize. Right. That's right. And each one would. And there's still the. Granted respite. Yeah. Well, consider that the Jews still had, like, food to eat and water to drink that could be bought. Yes. Yeah. So some of the Makos specifically say that they targeted Mitzrayim and not the Jews. Not all of them say that. Which ones include the Jews? Well, none of them specifically say that they did include the Jews, but only some of them 
specifically say that they didn't include the Jews. That's what I mean. Now, was it all Jews who weren't included? Because wasn't it like 80% of the Jews were killed in Egypt or stayed? No, they refused to leave. Mm -hmm. But that was later. They didn't take part in the Exodus. Darkness. God didn't want Egyptians to see, but he had killed them during Kosha. I didn't know that. Well, so that was a time where the Jews can go into the Egyptian people's house find out where they there. Go shopping. Go shopping. Window shopping. You know, within the past They didn't take anything. Sure they did. No, they did. No, not not during Kosha. They just saw where it was. Actually, she's right. When they came back. No, then they said, give us, you know, give us the, oh, we don't have it. Oh, yes, you do. You're right. You're right. And they know it, and they pointed out that, hey, we could have stolen it, but we didn't. Right. But uh, in the past year, some Egyptian actually said that Jews need to, Israel needs to make reparations because I yeah. <laughs> yeah. admitted having a Yeah, that was yeah, one of the Muslim they, Brotherhood guys. Yeah. yeah, but the answer to that is, what about all the the, um, the wages that they got? Yeah, for, well, right. the years that they were there. Right. So I think it more than covers it. Yeah, yeah, a long time ago, right. a long time ago, around the time of the, the Alexander the Great, right. there's something similar to that. Right. Well, a bunch of people were figuring out. Uh, that that uh, the Jews needed to pay back all the stuff they stole. Some guy came in with a big thing of logs saying, oh really, well, over 210 years of work, they only got a fraction of what they should have gotten. Mm-hmm. So uh, the other people just left before they actually had to pay uh, the Jews back. <laughs> that forced me. <laughs> no, that's okay. As far as the 80, you know, the what proportion of people died, so that that's Pasuk says in Parshas Bishalach, which is uh, next week, which is the the, uh, the Parsha of uh, Shiras Hazit, uh, Shiras Hayam, Shiras Hayam, and uh, splitting of the Red Sea. So it's Pasuk says Vachamushim alu bnei Yisrael meretz mitzrayim that the Jewish people Chamushim. That's the word. So the question is, what does that word mean? <clears throat> um, simplest explanation is it means that they were armed like they had weapons, but the Medrash says that only one-fifth of the Jews left. Um, Where did they go? They died. That would be an embarrassment. Well, they died in Choshech. In simple (coughs) understanding, it would be hard to say that if there were 600,000 men plus women and children who aren't counted, and that's only one-fifth, and everyone else, and that's, it's hard to say that that's like really meant to be taken literally. Otherwise, there would have been like, you know, untold numbers of Jewish people, but it may just be more of a, an idea <clears throat> that B'nai Israel, many, many people were not worthy or were doubtful, um, but the numbers would be staggering. If 80%, you know, if four out of five people <clears throat> um, didn't make it out, <clears throat> and yet nonetheless you had over, you know, you had millions of people. It could mean that the 80% didn't get to go to Israel. They didn't take part in the exodus. It was a lot more than that, because even out of the ones who left, most of them didn't go. Right. Well, they died in the on the journey. Yeah. Right. Um, so one final, one final domain that yeah, he pointed out that uh, um, that was addressed here was a kind of reordering of like social hierarchies or social uh, organization, <clears throat> meaning. So the Jewish people were obviously very lowly. They were slaves. They were disrespected. They were uh, probably very dirty. And um, you know, and the Egyptians, <coughs> I, 
there were hierarchies within Egyptian culture as well, but seems like the Jews were very low on the totem pole and the Egyptian would walk past them and kind of like flaunt you know, how powerful they were as opposed to the lowly Jew. Um, and they could say, look, look how dirty they are. You know, Obviously they're deserving of it because look how they look, uh, which is kind of a cyclical, uh, circular way of talking about it. But <clears throat> some of the makos kind of undo that. So one of them, again, is Kenim, the mako of lice. It says that the... Uh, the Egyptian, it says that the kinim affected people and animals. So what our Italian wanted to say was, animals have lice anyway, because animals always have bugs crawling on them. But that was the whole point. The maki didn't put the kinim on the animal, it put it on the person, and they were just like an animal. <clears throat> and then, in light of what I was just saying about the Jews being lowly, we could add, the Jews probably had lice anyway also, because if you're just living in filth or you're a slave, so you probably have some infestations going on. Um, so the Egyptians are no better than the people that they thought were the lowliest people. They're no better than their animals. But the only people who were specifically afflicted with Kenim were the, Mitz- were the Mitzrim. Um, that's what I'm saying. There was no differentiation between the Jews and the Mitzrim. The Jews probably had it anyway. They were living in filth. Um, <clears throat> but this maka affected the Egyptians. You're no better than anybody else. Uh, another maka that conveys this is um, uh, Shechin. So shrin is boils, but again, if you read the psukim, it's, it's, it's not just like a little nuisance, it's like disgusting. It's like, you know, pus pouring out, and it's, um, it's just gross. <clears throat> um, and it says that the Khartoumim could not appear, could not stand before Moshe and Aaron uh, because they had shrin. So first of all, we see that even the Khartoumim, who are like, you know, noblemen or whatever Sorcerers. the term would be. Sorcerers. Sorcerers, which might had some sort of uh, high rank in, in the culture. They couldn't, they couldn't stand before Moshe and Aaron. So there's a double meaning to that. On the one hand, they were embarrassed that they couldn't match the sorcery powers of Moshe and Aaron. They were embarrassed. But on the simpler level, they were just, you know, gross. They were, they were covered in this disease. They couldn't be seen. They had to, everyone had to be in isolation. So again, it's saying even the people who are at the highest ranks in society get knocked down. Earlier they have, you know, bug infestations. Now they have these like disgusting diseases where they're, you, know, you can't even look at them and they can't even appear in public. So again, we see that Mo- Moshe, as the messenger of Hashem, is saying, you know, you think one way but about your place in the world, but I'm going to send you a very different message. Um, so, to summarize, the Makos can be viewed not just as a punishment for the suffering that was caused to the Jewish people, but also as sending certain kind of convey certain messages. So try to undermine Egyptian ideas of what their gods were, try to teach some of the ideas of, <clears throat> of what monotheism, what Hashem is all about. It wrecked the Egyptian economy. We didn't mention, of course, that they ended slavery, which was the basis of the economy as well. But aside from that, you know, it affected their food and uh, their plants and all, the, and all the rest. And finally, it, it tried to, um, or it accomplished the feat of rearranging their society, that they thought that they were higher up and the Jews were lower down, the Makos brought them down you know, uh, in a very specific kind of way. Um, so that's that's my piece. Thank you. We done. Thanks. We done.